Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux. Gary and I are looking forward to our conversation later in the podcast with president and founder of Ogilvy Center for Behavioral Science, uh, Chris Graves. But before we have our conversation with Chris, Gary, let's talk a little bit about the news. Uh, we see the sure. sh- shootings uh, in El Paso and Dayton have captured the media's attention, but perhaps what is most disturbing about the events as we know them in El Paso is that this is yet another situation seemingly stimulated by hate speech in America. Yes, which is growing by every every measure, objectively. And, you know, I've read a lot, Mike, on this over the weekend on, um, you know, should we carry the manifesto that the shooter um, allegedly and purportedly posted before the attack that repeated some of the language we're seeing today um, in our public discussion about immigration and other things, invasion, send them back, um, that kind of thing. But I, I really was interested in going back and looking through, um, you know, who is supporting hate speech. Mm-hmm. And it really is in many ways a hidden sort of thing in which some big corporations who, if they knew they were supporting it, um, probably wouldn't. So 8chan, I guess, is the platform on which uh, this um, manifesto was posted, and it's the third one that's been posted on there um, of mass shootings going back to Christchurch in New Zealand, where 50 people were killed. Mm -hmm. And the founder of 8chan said, uh, after El Paso, that maybe that platform should go away. But I've also been reading um, uh, things like Amazon unknowingly supporting 8chan. The founder or the owner of 8chan is a guy named Jim Watkins, and he makes his money on something called Books.Audio. Mm. And that's, those things are sold on Amazon. So the financial resources um, that 8chan and, and, uh, needs, in part, comes from from Amazon. So, um, and I see Cloudflare also, which is the cybersecurity firm for HN, has now said they'll they're going to quit uh, doing work with them. So, it really is. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult social issue. This rise of hate speech, but well, it's out there, and it's it, it's you know it's worked its way into into so many parts of the discussion that we have socially, particularly. It's hard to nail down. It's, it it, it um, has so many different tangents and heads. Well, and it's like they play off of, you know, conversations that are out there, but they take like the sharpest yep. edge and they create yeah. echo chambers online about this stuff. So like in the case of, of the shooter in El Paso, you know, he was playing off of a lot of things happening and changes in the population in Texas, talking about, you know, yes. Hispanics growing at a faster rate than the rest of the population, creating concern about 
immigration and who these people are. And, you know, and that manifesto uses the term invasion to describe immigration, right. uh, a term which has been used by some of our leaders in Washington, uh, disparaging newcomers to the country. And uh, it, it creates concern. Obviously, there are also First Amendment rights, um, you know, that... Uh, you and I both believe in that people should. Exactly. Uh, but at what point does some of this become the equivalent of, you know, uh, shouting fire in a movie theater? Right. And, and we've seen the other more popular platforms have great difficulty, Mike, Facebook, for example, in enforcing their own sort of rules about um, civil speech. Yeah, it, it is so difficult. The volume is so great. The interpretation is so difficult. Uh, it's it's an interesting uh, problem, not just for the more radical platforms, but even for those um, through which Americans talk with each other on a regular basis every yeah. day. Yeah. And 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 uh, I wanted to ask you, um, Margaret Sullivan from The Washington Post, who's always so smart. Um, had a column this weekend, you know, that uh, about the predictability of how we discuss these tragedies um, in the media, through the news yeah. media. Of course, we all turn into cable news and see what's happening. And there's a outpouring of thoughts and prayers. There's a, you know, a, a political discussion that's fairly wrote about who's to blame. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what should we cover? Should we include the manifesto Um on our websites and that kind of thing. So this is one that's particularly important to you or personal to you, given mm -hmm. your personal background. Yeah. So is it better to have it all out there, the manifesto and all of that? Or is it, you know, do, do we censor it, if that's the right word in some ways, um, so that we don't give people a platform? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to begin with. Uh, two, I do think that to the extent that some of this is in the sunshine, that is that more of us have familiarity with it, actually, the better. Um, and I also think that the uh, at the same time, we've got to be careful not to almost seem to be celebratory of some idiot who's going to go halfway across, well, go almost fully across the state. Yes. I think the shooter was from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So he had Dallas to drive yes. literally hundreds of miles. Now, El Paso is a special community. I lived there at one point as a kid. And literally thousands of people every day go across the border from Mexico to the United States, United States to Mexico. Um, and it's it's a fairly warm community in the sense that this this has never appeared to be invasion. Obviously, Beto O'Rourke is from this is his hometown. Um, so I think a lot of right. factors that were out there uh, stimulated this individual to feel like they were exacting some justice by going across the state to El Paso, which is defined as the largest border town in Texas, uh, to take right. this action. That said, I do think that it's important to know what might have stimulated this individual. 
I, I That's think right. It's I, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. I, it, I, I read last night some, some liberals saying, "Oh my goodness!" For example, the Drudge Report posted the manifesto. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I think it's good to have it out in the sunshine, in, in some form, right? Someplace. Right, right. Well, at the same time, I think that sometimes we can get overtly political about these situations, yeah. uh, and, and, and that's not always called for. Uh, but at the same yeah, time, exactly. I think we need to understand and, and strive to better understand what's the causation so that these things don't happen again. Now, clearly, there's a little bit of, you know, a lot of other countries uh, have people who are right wing. A lot of other countries have mm -hmm. problems with immigration and have people who are anti-immigration. But also in a lot of countries, we don't have this kind of impact. And maybe that's because our gun laws are different. Maybe it's because mm -hmm. of the nature of how we talk about it or don't talk about it leads to grosser misunderstandings than there needs to be. Exactly. And and you're so right, Mike. And for those of you who are interested in this topic, listen to the conversation we're going to have with Chris Graves about persuasiveness and how people make up their minds. To your point, Mike, which is there are studies out there that show that people who are mentally ill are not more likely to be violent than people who are not mm -hmm. mentally ill. There's a study actually from BU in 2016 that says the pathway uh, to fewer homicides and fewer gun deaths are simple things like universal background checks and banning violent offenders from having handguns and giving discretion to police who on who gets a concealed carry permit. Right. But discussing those things, as you saw this weekend, in a fact-based way maybe isn't effective, mm -hmm. um, particularly with people who are very supportive of the Second Amendment. Yeah. And so I think Chris has a lot to say about how people, maybe how to have that discussion nationally, which we need to have in a different way. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you know, you think about hate speech, and another element of hate speech that's kind of been in the news lately are the use of online bots uh, that yeah. essentially are used to attack political figures in different ways. Uh, there have been uh, social media content questioning Kamala Harris's nationality and her blackness, as well as her get tough on crime positioning as California's AG. Uh, there's even uh, we've even seen Joe Biden uh, being pounced on for every little yep. misstatement. Uh, there is even a little bit of overplaying of a comment he a side comment he made to Kamala Harris about uh, go easy on me, kid. And, and, and then there and then there's also been uh, a lot of discussion online about, uh, you know, Tulsi Gabbard becoming somewhat of a target from Russian sites. So, um, uh, yeah. And the journal this week, Mike, the Wall Street, or maybe it was last week, Wall Street Journal did a great analysis after the second Democratic debate that showed there were hundreds of social media accounts um, that were bot-like in their traits, uh, promoting misinformation about the candidates, particularly uh, device, divisive content on race mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, related to uh, Senator Harris. 
um, specifically. So it's how do we how do you deal with this mm-hmm. um, as a both as a candidate and as a society? Um, because it, studies have shown that this is this can be effective, and it was effective if you believe the research in the presidential campaign in 2016. Well, yeah, and even before then, I mean, you know, there was the uh, whole birther thing with Obama that yes. I think sort of reached that kind of level and and uh, got a lot of activation in terms of kind of an echo chamber online too. And it played into this th- this notion that we all have a tendency to be more open to believing people who are like us. And so if we go to sites and that argument is repeated over and over again, then we start to say, well, maybe that could be true. And I think Chris will have some interesting things uh, to share with us on that because that's right up his alley. Um, But but also, you and I were were having a, a conversation offline and you pointed to the fact that, you know, when we start thinking about fake news and we start thinking about creating communities of interest, that there now are uh, some entities uh, that are beginning to look at this differently. And fake news isn't something that just affects politics in the United States. There have been stories out there in, uh, in Germany. You know, the, the, the storyline is that Cambridge Analytica, even before they became a factor in the United States were already a factor in the UK and indeed did work for those seeking Brexit. Uh, But now we see there are some that uh, are beginning to question whether or not they need to play a bigger role. Uh, Gary, why don't you share with us what you've learned about the government of what the government of Finland is doing after uh, recognizing that Russians are meddling in elections and keep in mind too that you know here you have a country that actually shares an 832 mile border with the russians exactly and, and it was a it it's it, um a story that i found on uh, that cnn had done um focused on what the finnish government is doing and they've decided in their schools to a- attack the issue of fake news um and it's working uh, when you look at media literacy uh, awareness levels in Europe, uh, the Finns are at the top of the list. And it focuses really on critical thinking uh, skills that they teach to, I would say, in the United States equivalent of uh, middle school to early high school grades. And, uh, and this is across they, all, the, all, all that, the schools at that grade level? That's correct. And they teach them... To um, you know, this is, goes back to 2015 when mm-hmm. the president um, called on every Finn mm-hmm. to take responsibility for the fight against false information. Mm-hmm. And and so what they do is it's it, it's something that's missing uh, probably in a lot of our schools. It's, it's critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Stop. Take a look. Is it something that you believe? Is it something that you should share? Do you know the source? Does it sound incredible? Uh, in other words, um, is it something that you personally believe could actually be the case? And um, we've often talked about with Arthur Page, Mike, and some other organizations, journalism organizations, K 
can a media literacy campaign like that work here? Mm-hmm. And boy, it's uh, what I've gotten in response to that question is um, it's so hard to do, yeah. right? Just so hard to do. It does take the government probably to get it to scale. Mm-hmm. But you can look at what's going on in Finland and see it does work. Mm-hmm. And if you look across Europe, uh, media literacy awareness uh, as to what's real and what's not real is much higher than it is in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of going from fake news to no news. Um, you and I both <laughs> saw the New York Times uh, yeah. a special piece on a future without the front page, the collapse of local newspapers. Uh, you were uh, a, a journalist. Uh, I worked at the yeah. margins with news media early in my career with CBS and, uh, and NPR. Um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, what we're seeing across the scheme of America as local newspapers are uh, falling by the wayside. Yeah, and if you have your Sunday Times, um, we're, we're recording this uh, in August, but there was a special section in the Times about the death of newspapers. And over the past 15 years, the United States, 2,100 newspapers have either closed or been merged with their competitors. Um, And as a result now, there are 2,000 counties in the U.S. with no daily newspaper. There are 200 with no newspaper at all, 200 counties. I was part of a newspaper that got merged with its competitor. It was a great, uh, you know, sort of feisty, aggressive little newspaper in Albany, New York, called the Knickerbocker News. Mm -hmm. And it it was an afternoon, Mm -hmm. and it went away. And I think I think the coverage of the city of Albany, I think coverage of state government suffered from it. And that's what we're seeing is these news deserts in communities across the country mm-hmm. where not, there's not fake news. Um, mm-hmm. There's no news at all. Yeah. Nobody covering local government, nobody covering the school board, um, nobody keeping an eye as journalism is, is meant to do on on government as, you know, the fourth estate, um, you know, journalists. Uh, considering self the, the fourth estate of sort of the society that we've built. Mm-hmm. Well, this, and in larger cities, there used to be... It's going to get worse, too. Yeah, and in larger cities, there used to be many more two newspaper towns than there are today. Oh, totally. I mean, we, we still in have that... In big cities, there are none. Yeah, well, it's there like... That's right. Uh, but it's like, because the Rocky Mountain News was there in Denver, it made the Denver Post right. actually better. Uh, you know, because right. the Tampa Tribune was there, it actually made the St. Pete newspaper better. Uh, and the same right. thing goes with the Seattle Post Intelligencer. You know, uh, yeah. it, it made the Seattle Times better. Uh, and then to right. your point, and look, you know, you've got a lot of towns that it, don't have anything now. At all. And, and, and it, it is, and some of this news has moved online. Um, but it's not with the rigor, I, I don't believe, that you, you get from a newspaper culture. And it's going to get worse, Mike, because, uh, and not to pick on any company, but um, there's a big merger heading uh, our way with Gateway and Gannett. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like that, that merger of two big newspaper chains will go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whatever's left there will control one out of six newspapers in the United States. That kind of consolidation in the news business is just not good, in my view, for democracy. Well, and it's interesting. And so, 
you travel, I travel. What's interesting when I get to kind of these mid-sized towns that are like, you know, maybe between 50,000, 100,000 people, is you also see the newspapers that are in those towns are much thinner yes. than they used to be. Yeah. And, and I almost wonder is the lack of editorial content, if, if that in part is leading to some of the challenges that we see in terms of greater polarization, uh, less government accountability, greater mistrust, yeah. maybe even lower voter turnout. Uh, I think you're right. And, and think about a place, um, I know it a little bit because GE had a big presence there, in Cleveland, let's say. Mm-hmm. Great city. And the Cleveland Plain Dealer editorial page used to be a powerhouse, mm-hmm. right? And it was just yeah. the voice of sort of the, the middle part of the country and it helped people think about big, tough issues and something that politicians and others look to for smart uh, thinking on it, and it's a shell of what it used to be uh, because of um, finance, the way the world has changed. And I do think you're right. I think communities have lost a, a sense of unity and uh, of clear thinking because of that kind of fragmentation and diminishment of some of these great uh, newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, in an earlier episode, uh, you and I talked about employee activism. We talked about Wayfair, mm-hmm. the employee walkout. We talked about Google and other companies. Now that activism seems to be reaching marketing and PR firms. I mean, more recently it right. was reported, uh, I believe it was Adweek, uh, that uh, facing employee backlash and potential PR fallout, that Edelman actually stopped working uh, for a company called the Geo Group uh, that actually runs some of these ICE detention centers. And, uh, and to me, that's fascinating. And similarly, um, there was the release of a uh, internal all-staff email from Ogilvy, where Ogilvy CEO and chairman John uh, Seifert uh, was kind of put in a similar position and addressed employee concerns about its ongoing work with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Um, interested in, in, in what you think of that, particularly since, you know, last time we talked about the fact that uh, increasingly the workforce, as it becomes uh, more millennial but even more Gen Z, and these individuals are very idealistic. They, go to, they want to go to work for companies that do good yeah. in the world. And what this might mean for employers in the future and even agencies in the future. Yeah, and, you know, to, to Edelman's credit, um, they have been out front. You know, they have made some clear decisions on who they'll work for and who they won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think they've done it in a transparent way, but they missed this one. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me, Mike, about this was that the employees not only sort of objected internally to working for the GEO group, but they actually leaked the, the pitch mm-hmm. that uh, Edelman did to them to win the business, mm-hmm. uh, both to Adweek and it looked like subsequently to the New York Times. So uh, my lesson takeaway is, uh, not only employees going to express this to you, they're going to act on it if you don't. Yeah. yeah and so- uh, boy, that, that is a different world than you and I grew up in. 
yeah. in many ways. Well, you know, and, and, and when I was the U.S. CEO at Burson Marsteller, I mean, it, it already was getting to the point where we had to have upfront discussions around, you know, yes. what kinds of companies, uh, what kinds of organizations are we willing to pitch? And, you know, right. under what circumstances will we reassess an engagement? And what are the circumstances under which we might actually fire a client, knowing that there were right. financial implications, but knowing also that you were trying to manage a new style workforce and you were also trying to navigate the reputation of the agency as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, and look, I know the competition for um, the competition for business is fierce. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, it's immense. But the long-term damage, both to a corporation, an agency, whomever, kind of an organization, this kind of risk assessment has got to be at the top of your list. Mm -hmm. um, and that starts not just with the external, but with the internal. And the values that you express to your people and whether the people that you're partnering with are living those values as well as your own people. Very well stated. Gary, um, I am thrilled uh, that as our uh, next guest uh, is somebody uh, we both know very well as a friend. Yes. He's been at the forefront of uh, behavioral science as applied to public relations and advertising. So uh, let's move on to Chris. Terrific. Gary and I are thrilled to have as our guest this week, uh, Christopher Graves. Uh, Chris is, is, is a good friend. He's the president of the Ogilvy Center uh, for Behavioral Science. Uh, he previously has served as the global chairman, global CEO, and the regional APAC CEO uh, for Ogilvy Public Relations. Uh, prior to that, uh, he had, for two decades, been in the media news business, spent 18 years with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Chris, welcome to the crux. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, we're thrilled to have you. And, and you know, one of the things that really intrigues me as we get into this notion of what behavioral science is and what its impact might be on choices and decision-making for public relations executives and, and marketing and advertising execs is the whole issue of persuasiveness. And um, uh, Gary, I know that uh, you share a piece uh, even with your students at Boston University that, that Chris put That's together right. some years ago. Yeah, I'm a big fanboy, Chris. <laughs> uh, seriously, this is, I'm so thrilled to talk to you. And, and uh, it was at a Institute for Public Relations meeting in 2014, I believe, Chris, or 2015. And you gave a presentation that was really fascinating, but you left behind a piece that you had done called Brain Behavior and Story. And it's all about um, the fact that, uh, you know, facts don't aren't convincing as we think they are. And of course, it's about uh, showing people uh, why they should agree with you or why they might have an open mind. And I hand that out 
that piece to my uh, students at, at BU, both at graduates and undergraduates. So tell me, tell me, just tell our listeners the takeaway from sure. that piece, which is yeah, what you know, what what should a corporate communicator think about when trying to be persuasive um, yeah. with some of their stakeholders? Well. First of all, it was a giant wake-up call for me. It was about a decade of research, more than 14,000 uh, primary studies that I created a taxonomy on and, and built an app to surf it called Amos. But um, I was really obsessed by this because I felt that in public relations, while we had a lot of people who had studied psychology as a background or journalism as a background, we were not data phobic or research phobic in any way, uh, but it was not behavioral science. And by behavioral science, I throw into that bin uh, cognitive neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, social psychology, behavioral economics, and something called narrative transportation theory. And what I saw was that so many things we had uh, accepted as conventional wisdom in solutions to big, thorny, or even routine challenges in public relations were just wrong or ineffective. Yeah. And so it kind of blew my mind that there was a really robust science out there. I ended up winning a uh, Rockefeller Foundation Bellagio residency, not as a behavioral scientist, but basically as a translator. I came to <laughs> earn the respect of the scientists and could translate their completely impenetrable, unfathomable language into something that public relations people could not only understand but deploy. So that paper that you had was a distillation of thousands of pieces of research, and really it was covering three things, Gary. One, just about everything we thought we knew about how humans make decisions and shape opinions was wrong. Two, yeah. Everything we thought we knew about how to change people's minds or perceptions not only was wrong, it backfired. And three, that the neuroscience findings show us that there really is a more effective way to engage people than we thought. So by putting those three things together as a sort of narrative thread called brain behavior story, is able to condense into a very short document what would otherwise oh. be a very dense read. It, it's fantastic. And I, uh, we'll put it up on our website. We'll put a PDF up, Chris, of it on the Crux website. But so why do you think, I mean, this is something we've been talking about in public relations for a few years now. And yeah. we still see, we still see, and, and me among them, I, how many myths and facts pieces that I do, you know, <laughs> on complex yeah. issues that were, persuasive to no one, maybe to the folks inside the company, but outside, not at all. And we still see today, Chris, big companies having a difficult time trying to persuade people that the science, that science is on their side. Um, yeah. And we see it in, yeah. we see it in uh, courtrooms with juries ruling against companies. Uh, we see it in a, a court of public opinion as well. So, What's, what fundamental change do we need to make as public relations yeah. practitioners to, to fight this trend, I guess? Yeah, and that was one of the giant findings, all credit to Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, some of the fathers of behavioral economics. 
who really were psychologists, not economists, but mm-hmm. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for economics in 2002. And what he discovered was that, you know, we really are not reasoning creatures at all. And there's uh, a whole lot of <laughs> reasons behind why we're seemingly irrational. But at the brain level, another scientist, Antonio Damasio, discovered that really there are two parts of the brain that must work together for us to make sense of things and uh, make decisions. And of those two, one is more of a senior partner, and it is really more related to emotion governing in the brain than it is to sort of a reason and analysis. So we're actually wired in a way that our brain skews uh, <laughs> more toward a premium on emotion than it does cool cold analysis. What gets in the way of that for most people, and we're all a bit different, but for most humans, what gets in the way is first the brain level structure of how we make decisions. And by the way, that made sense when our current version of our brain was wired. Uh, Our brain does not get refreshes and updates the way software does. Mm -hmm. It's a slow evolution. And the best guess of evolutionary biologists is the current brain you and I are using right now to talk on trucks was <laughs> wired roughly about 40,000 years ago. And I got to tell you, I'm uh, old, but if you've ever used 40,000 year old software, it sucks. <laughs> and so trying to get humans to use a 40,000 year old software without any hope of an update or refresh to make sense of very complicated things like climate change or mm-hmm. even gun-controlled data, it's very, very tough. So there are a number of things that play. Right. Some, some are, are ridiculous and, and tactical and small, and some are very deep. One of them, a huge one, perhaps the biggest filter, is identity. And some of the most brilliant work on this is done out of Yale at the Cultural Cognition Project. And what they have done is map out, and I use this with clients, map out where you are and where your audiences are on a kind of worldview grid. And people do not migrate, or at least don't easily migrate on this grid. And when you see this, it it is not just a question of Republicans and Democrats, one idiots, one smart. What you find is that, for example, uh, you may have Republicans not being able to accurately uh, read a climate change data graph, but by the same token, you may have Democrats not being able to accurately discern GMO data. Right. And so it's mm-hmm. not something that's the exclusive domain of one party. It is very human in that. So I would say a giant distortion filter is identity. It's yeah. something called um, identity cognition threat. That so that's why we think, that's why we see yeah. that scientific knowledge is oftentimes used just to reinforce beliefs exactly. that are already held by absolutely that party, as well as the influence of local values, local opinions. Oftentimes, pardon the expression, trumping science. Yes, because. Deep down, if we feel the evidence you are showing me, and there's a wonderful experiment going back to 1979 with Professor Charles Lord, which people can look up, the seminal experience in this, where he coined the term confirmation bias, where when you Mm -hmm. show people, smart people, evidence that they're wrong, 
their first reaction is to discount your evidence, not to change their belief. And I got to tell you, if you've ever, you know, any relationship uh, with your spouse, partner, your kids, neighbor, if you're in an argument and somebody whips out Google on their phone and looks it up and jams it in your face and goes, aha, totally. your first reaction is not, I love you for correcting. Right. Your first reaction is, what a jerk. Where did you read that? It can't be right. <laughs> right. I, I, I learned long ago, I just say, you're right, hon. <laughs> so getting people over that means you really have to do it in a way that does not threaten their identity. And I work with our clients uh, with this on many, many aspects, whether it's uh, climate change or vaccines. How do you respect the identity rather than label them and bash them? Mm -hmm. You are never going to change somebody's view on vaccines by labeling them an anti-vaxxer or a moron, especially if they're a thoughtful, intelligent, research-oriented person who is scared. So, and Chris... So, you know, you, First step is that identity hurdle. Yeah. So, Chris, so, so what is if you want to move an audience or you want to move even an individual, does that mean that you first have to identify who they trust, uh, what their fundamental values are and, and somehow reset your argument against that? Absolutely. I liken it to personalized medicine. Hmm. Oncologists today treat cancer by first looking at your genome. We in public relations should not attempt to move somebody until we understand the equivalent of their genome, which are uh, the following things. One is something called personality trait science. Uh, folks can Google it under my name, Christopher Graves, Harvard Business Review Personality. There's an article that decodes that for them. And there are ways to do that ethically and unethically. So you have to be careful. There is the mm -hmm. cultural cognition or worldview. And then there are these filters that are inherent to each of us as individuals about how we make sense of the world. So we've created a kind of tool. Um, I've partnered with Kantar on this to actually decode individuals at scale to then come back at them, reframing your messaging your positioning and your engagement in ways that respect who they are and how they see the world rather than try to drag them across a line that they're never going to cross. <laughs> right. Well, and you've actually applied well, and, you've actually applied some of this and have talked about it extensively around this whole vaccine controversy. Uh, where certain yes. parties have had hesitancy because they fear that the vaccination may indeed create health issues for one's child. Absolutely. And first of all, if you, you know, look back, imagine, be, be a little bit empathetic to the patient or the consumer. They're watching TV. Every other, sometimes two out of three ads, are for afflictions that you don't have. Mm -hmm. And so they begin to believe that big pharma, as a negative narrative, is creating product the way uh, a consumer products company may create shampoo. And they worry that there's fear-mongering. I'm going I'm to make you fear about the social <laughs> stigmatization of dandruff and sell you a dandruff shampoo. Yeah. Now I'm going to make you afraid of an affliction you've never heard of and sell you a very expensive vaccine or drug. Well, that's not correct. 
but you can understand why they begin to fear that. Second, they, nobody has really explained to them in a very understandable way. It's called uh, operational transparency in behavioral science, and it's the reason why if you go to a restaurant where you can see through the window the chef and the ingredients in tests, consumers think it tastes better and they're willing to pay more for exactly the same food. It's the reason why you look on Uber and you're willing to forgive the driver for being taking longer than a taxi because you can track them in real time. It's called operational transparency. And in terms of vaccines, wow. I dare you to get an accurate answer if you ask an educated person these two questions. One, how does a vaccine work? And two, how is a vaccine made? And until you do those two things, you really can't expect people to just trust you and believe you. And then mm -hmm. they compare it to their childhood experience, where there were relatively few vaccines compared to today. Now, vaccines are a miracle. But if you remember only getting three, and today you're getting 22 for your child, you think, hey, what happened there? Well, what happened there was invention. But still, we worry that maybe they're pushing products. And then you find uh, really interesting struggles, for example, whether it's a deeply religious community that worries that, you know, I'm going to leave my fate in, in the hands of God. I don't really need pharma to do this for me. Or if you're in what is known as a sometimes called a crunchy or complementary and alternative medicine community, which is not a bad thing. I mean, much of traditional Chinese medicine is based on very real science. But you cannot eat organically and expect to build an immunity to the measles. It just doesn't work that way. But people do think that because they worry that there might be toxins or bad ingredients in vaccines. So it's a really multifaceted challenge that if you accept it with empathy and begin to explain it in ways that are not threatening to the identity and beliefs of the audience, you have more success. So, so Chris, so, and every for our listeners, I hope you see why I'm such a fanboy. <laughs> so, this is so fascinating, and I think essential to what we do. So, how do you marry that theory and the tools you've created, which sound fantastic, with the way we communicate with each other these days, which is shorter, right? Yeah. In in 280 characters. So yeah. does, does your theory, does the science, does it play on the platforms that we use today? Yeah. Well, I'm not a Luddite about social media. And going back to 2005 <laughs> with Ogilvy, I was one of the early founders of something that became called Social at Ogilvy. Um, I started using social media when the biggest platforms were Friendster and Zonga. Uh, you know, so I, it goes way back. So I'm not a Luddite about social media, and I participate in social media, but here's the bad thing. Behavioral scientists particularly uh, read the books by Cass Sunstein, and he's got two brand new ones out for public relations people especially. One is uh, called Conformity, yeah. which is a really interesting read, uh, and another is called How Change Happens. And if you read these, one of the things you'll find very, very uh, disconcerting about social media 
is that you create what he calls an availability cascade. It's like an echo chamber. And this is where bots come in. It's not that bots make a really uh, deep and persuasive argument that move you off your position. It is more about hearing the repetition, the echoing of a theme from a million sources in three days. And it just really wears down even the brightest of human brains. Uh, He calls that availability cascade. So my view is uh, that it's really quite a dangerous and deleterious thing because there had been hopes that social media might make us more moderate by exposing us to a multiplicity of views. And instead, what has been discovered in behavioral science is this. If I were to take 15 people and interview each one of them separately and measure the extremity of their views on every topic and quantify that, and then put those 15 people into a room together as a group, they are radically more extreme than they were as individuals. And this, we knew everything going back from lynch mobs to everything that humans do that is weird in a group. And so this is what social media allows people to do at scale. We are far more extreme as a group than we are as individuals. And nobody can kind of feed off of one another. Crack that. Totally. And maybe Chris, maybe Chris, this is what's going on in jury rooms as well. Right. Where you get 12 people together and trying to discern what's true in science. And this this happens. They feed on each other and resulting in these big awards. Against multinationals. So, Chris. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not hopeful, guys. When you look at the, it's it's almost like if you were to go very cosmic about this for a moment and look at how scientists had for decades tried to figure out is our our universe expanding or contracting, and they do this by looking at the red shift, the Doppler shift. Well, uh, they determined it's still expanding, and I think that social media has taken us in terms of polarization and we will further polarize long before we come together. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris, you and I were both at uh, Nudge Doc uh, this summer. And one of the things that caught my eye is how a number of people are attempting to use behavioral science uh, and in particular nudge theory to change the equation a bit, at least at the margins. And one of the things that really caught my eye, there was a presenter, uh, Mass Matheson. Uh, He's the CEO and co-founder of something called Hold. And what he had done is he had created an app by which you would be incentivized not to use your phone, not to use social media. And now something like more than 50% of the uh, university population in Norway uh, now has this app and is you know, getting free coffee, getting discounts to movies. Are there things at the margins that can be done as we work with clients to steer people maybe in a better direction? Well, you know, good luck to Ms. Matheson on that, because I think he may have a rarefied air, both in geography and in target group that he's working with. I think that for most people, it is just such a compulsion to fill little moments of mindlessness in our lives, you know, that that's, that's a tough thing. There is a sort of trend, but it's not been quantified, of 
of younger people looking, you know, at kind of how we as a society swing back and forth and to disconnect, to disconnect for a little while, for example. But none of this, social media did not create these problems. Right. It merely amplified what is already there in all of us as humans. I, I, I've seen a few things that I think might be helpful. Um, one is um, when you think of uh, this sort of empathetic approach rather than an attack approach. Um, and you can perhaps, you know, work with people at simple levels. Don't use nouns, use verbs. Yeah. When you call somebody, uh, for example, a leaker, you've now made them a kind of human, a label, as opposed to using the verb, they leaked the information, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a choice. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a stunning thing, but it works. And you'll find people in politics doing this more and more where they label uh, enemy groups by a noun. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it works, unfortunately, in in-groups and out-groups. So I would work with your college students to mm -hmm to understand the power of language use mm -hmm. in, in creating divisions. Mm -hmm. Another is uh, something called a convert communicator. And this is to take somebody from one tribe who now has changed their view at the great risk and peril of being exiled from their tribe because of a personal, profound experience. And by doing this, um, they're more credible than any other testimonial. So, for example, a mother who is educated and did not vaccinate her children, who got near deathly ill mm -hmm. and decided, yes, I, I had legitimate fears, but those fears outweighed the miracle that is vaccines, and so now I've changed my view on it. She is more compelling and more credible than Big Pharma telling you that. Right. So there are tactics that you can use, uh, and a whole library of tactics that you can use. I've used them at dinner parties where people think that they've invited a lot of people of the like mind in politics uh -huh. and suddenly <laughs> determine that they're sitting in the middle of a sort of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf moment <laughs> at their dinner party. And, and, and these tactics can mollify and, and prevent uh, you know, fistfights from breaking out at a dinner party. Well, it also it also so, points so, to the fact that oftentimes the the messenger is the message, at least in yeah. terms of acceptance, and 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 that yes. gets me to kind of another area that you've written about and talked about, uh, which is the role of influencers. Certainly, there are lots of advertisers spending money on people who they think can help influence people to at least trial their product or em embrace uh, a certain lifestyle. Uh, share with our listeners your thoughts in terms of where this trend towards influencer marketing is headed and, and, and whether yeah. that's valued or not. Yeah, they, I have strong views on this. So uh, you may have a trigger warning for all your listeners who are believers <laughs> in influencer marketing. Um, if you were to, right now, as I am, as we speak, go to Amazon and look up books that are about influencers and influencer marketing, you'll get more than 2,000 results on books alone. If you Google right now the phrase peak influence, um, you will get several thousand. So, you know, we are at a point where I think we drink the Kool-Aid collectively in marketing and communications that we want to find the answer. 
And what science shows us is, you know, when you look at evidence for things, there are observable, you know, answers, and, and you can create a hypothesis, but you have to be prepared for things to be messier, and you have to be pre prepared to have contradictory findings and sometimes a false hypothesis. And so when you look at something like influencer marketing, which is something I've been a bit of a contrarian about for a while, I will never forget in front of the PR Council annual event about five or six years ago, interviewing Duncan Watt. Now, Duncan has written a wonderful book called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. And he is a scientist. And he, I asked in all of his studies of influencer marketing, he really, together with another scientist from MIT named Sinan Aral, who actually wrote a wonderful study on fake news this past year. But those two have been deep scientists at network influence levels. In other words, tracking. Do you really influence somebody? And what they discovered is more likely you are popular rather than being influential. And we conflate the two in our business. We mm -hmm. think of influencers as people who have large following. It's possible to have a very large following and not be very influential in things that matter. So first, I would say don't conflate popularity with influence. Influence, the behavioral scientists would say, is quite a specific definition. They would say that because of your intervention with me, I have changed how I view something, my opinion, and or my behavior but not coincidental to me because of your intervention. Proving that is very, very tough. I was going to so say, we, Chris, how do you, how yeah. do you prove this? How, how do you differentiate between popularity? Well, they actually set up very sophisticated modeling to do that, to be able to determine whether it's voting or whether it's opinion. Um, and mm -hmm. they created modeling that they repeat over and over again to find out. The term in behavioral science is called homophily which is basically birds of a feather flock together. Homophily is like we're so similar. And, and he uses the example with uh, debunking something from Malcolm Gladwell uh, in The Tipping Point. And in, there's an article you can Google called The Tipping Point is Toast. And basically what he looked at was an assumption that, for example, hipsters must have been influenced by someone to wear hush puppy. <laughs> and what you discover is sometimes that we are all dry grass ready to burn rather than an influential match who set us on fire. And so he looks at groups that are easily influenced as opposed to influencers influencing people. It's turning the telescope the other way around. The other way around. Uh, and yeah. so it's, yeah. And so it's all I caution people is yes, there is such a thing as influence. And, and I would actually ask them to read the very beginnings of this in PR a wonderful book, a, a, a behavioral science book from the 50s by two authors, Lazarsfeld and Katz, called Personal Influence. And um, this was really the beginning of influencer marketing in the 1950s that behavioral scientists and early people like Edward Bernays looked at in public relations. So there is a thing called influence, but we have hugely overused it, overhyped it, made claims that are not true. And I, there will be uh, 
with everything we do like this, a backlash. And you already see signs of that when you Google, as I said, peak influence. Uh, many thousands think we're already there, that we've already yeah. kind of blown it. And poof, we're off to the next thing. So instead of you know, big, powerful influencers, the current thinking is micro or nano influencers. You know what a nano influencer is? They're nobody. They're just like anybody next door. So we've now glorified somebody with no following as an influence. <laughs> well, so given all of this, Chris, and, and I love coming back to your thing about identity um, as, a, as a bias and a barrier Inside big companies, there is a lot of identity barrier thinking going on. You know, it, it, in other words, it is a huge hurdle for communicators to overcome. So a few years ago, when we were putting together the skills that were needed for communicators of the future at Arthur Page, we said, look, you've, you've got to take a look at brain science. And you were a big influence on that and how you think about influence and persuasion. If you were building a team inside one of these companies today, would you staff a person who, you know, I love this idea of a convert communicator. How would you address it practically on your team? Um, Other than hiring somebody smart like you. Well, um, I was asked this. There's a piece that McKinsey did that I was part of a team. They asked about if you're a corporation, how do you start up a behavioral science unit? And right. should it even be a unit? Should it be something that's spread out or should it be a unit where you are? Here's one of my confessions. This stuff does not scale easily. Um, genuine, for, let's just take what we were talking about in, in influencer marketing for a moment. Yes, there is a mm-hmm. science of influencer marketing, and there really is a real phenomenon. But we have aggrandized it and marketed it as though it is something easy to do at scale overnight. We've really mm-hmm. cheapened it that way. And I would say that the, the danger of every company you know, running and every agency running to be known as a behavioral science-driven agency is there's a high barrier to entry. It is mm-hmm. difficult to study, difficult to understand, difficult to communicate. You need to embrace that, have people who are actually polymath. You don't want just a behavioral scientist. You want a behavioral scientist with a sense of humor. You want a behavioral scientist <laughs> who can communicate internally. Exactly. You want somebody who, who bridges those worlds, right, as opposed to just a science unit. And so what I found as a real blue ocean or white space or whatever metaphor you want to use for opportunity is that person in public relations and agencies and communications, and really I'm a believer that communications people should own this, because they often do bridge worlds like that. Right. You know, public relations started as a behavioral science, mm-hmm. and it ended up um, being less so, perhaps, but it has always been about uh, translation. Whether yeah. you're translating financial terminology and jargon, health and medical, you're trying to translate for effect at scale. So totally. I would say to go about this, you either need to find that unicorn, who is mm-hmm. a person who is steeped in the behavioral science but can be a genuine, easy communicator, or you need to partner them very closely so that they work together on this. 
What I would also say in, in, a, in a corporate front or in an agency, a huge frustration I still have is people wait for a client to say, I think I have a behavioral science problem. <laughs> and then they go to the behavioral science nerd in the agency. And or they put a one line in an RFP. I think we have a need for behavioral science. <laughs> when actually every single thing we do as communicators could be made a little bit more effective yeah. by using these lenses of behavioral science. It yeah. should be across everything we do. So to answer your question, I'd attack it at two levels. At the macro broad level, I would have a basic uh, fluency uh, training, just like we wanted to make sure everybody was basically fluent in digital and social. I would want my entire communications group, you know, at a basic level to be understanding uh, behavioral science. But then at a so higher smart. level, I would want to have those, those experts that can be called in when you say, well, Chris, is this a problem with cultural cognition, or is this a problem with big five uh, ocean personality, or can I fix this by looking at regulatory focus or locus of control? And I'll be able to tell you. Yeah, that's great advice. And Chris, you've been fabulous. Um, thank you for joining us on The Crux. Uh, I, I know that there are at least a dozen other topics that we'd love to discuss with you. And I'd love to have you back on at another time where maybe we focus yeah, a little definitely. bit on influence in the political world. I know that in 2016, you did a lot of work analyzing the debates, analyzing the political discussion. And I think it might be ripe for us to do that maybe towards the back end of this year. We'll yeah. do it. Okay, great. Hey, Chris, and by the way, Mike as well, Chris mentioned like six books during this conversation I'm going to have to read before we have him back so <laughs> <laughs> so thank you Chris for being on really terrific thanks guys I appreciate it thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.